0: So last week with Faith Promise, and I didn't uh, preach, but two weeks ago, um, we were uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to spend the whole summer in the Sermon on the Mount, and at least maybe until school starts, um, and uh, see where we go from there. But last week, we were in a very difficult verse in the Sermon on the Mount, because Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the most righteous people in that day. That's a pretty fair translation. It's a paraphrase of the verse. The most righteous people, the most godly people, at least were thought so in that day. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will miss it. You won't make it. You will by no means we enter the kingdom of heaven. And that had to be, to us, that's not a real, like a slap in your face verse. Because we've heard so much teaching about the Pharisees and the teacher's law, okay? But for first century folk, when they heard that, that, that would have just been, well, lay me out, man. I can't believe you can say anything more ridiculous than that. It don't hit us that way because we've heard sermon after sermon about don't be like the Pharisees, don't be like the Pharisees. But in the first century, in Jesus' time, these were the godly people, man. These were the people that followed God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And here this upstart carpenter comes along and says, unless you're better than these guys, unless your righteousness, unless your goodness is what we talked about a little bit two weeks ago, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. You won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And we just spent the whole time talking about what is it, the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And real quickly, we said, it, first of all, it was an imputed righteousness. That's a theological word. That's an accounting term. Something has been credited to your account. You see, the Pharisees were out to establish their own righteousness. They were going to grit their teeth, and they were going to be godly whether it killed them. That was, that was they were just going to do it. And they wanted to make sure you knew that they did it. And you could pat them on the back for how godly they were. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that. And so we talked a little bit about a theological term that we don't use very often. An imputed righteousness. One that's given to you. One that you can't earn. One that you can't climb a ladder to attain. One that is given, that is credited to to your account. They didn't have that because they were trying to establish their own righteousness. Uh, So I preached that, what, two Sundays ago, and then on Saturday of that week, we buried uh, Caroline Neal's dad, Mike Cunningham, and I preached an abbreviated version of that message at the funeral because everybody that knew Mike said he was a good guy. He was a good guy. But I said... Mike knew that he wasn't good enough. That he had to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we're confident of Mike's eternal destination, not because he was good enough in and of his own self, but because he submitted to the righteousness that comes from God through his faith in Jesus Christ. The Pharisees didn't do that. There's lots of verses I could go to. Let me just review one. One of my favorite passages that shows you the Apostle Paul's heart in Romans chapter 10. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and my prayer for Israel is that they may be saved. Can't you just hear his heart? It's my heart's desire and it's my prayer that they would be saved. uh, 10 verse 2, For I can testify to you about them. Man, they are zealous for God. They're enthusiastic for God. They're in with both feet for God. But it's not the right way. It's not according to knowledge. And the third verse says, listen, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. If you're seeking to establish your own, would you stop it right now? You can't do it. It will damn you to hell. So what is the righteousness that is an exceeding righteousness that has to be more than what the scribes and the Pharisees is. It is an imputed righteousness, not a righteousness of their own. Because they, would, they sought to establish their own, they did not submit to the righteousness that comes from God. For some reason, this is popping a little bit today, so do your best to get over that, okay? All right, verse 4. Because Christ is the end, some translations say. Christ is the end of the law. So that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. (laughs) Uh, What kind of righteousness did the scribes and the Pharisees not have? What would exceed their righteousness? It was the righteousness from God that was through faith in Jesus Christ. They didn't have it. It was the righteousness that you have when you say, I'm not good enough. I can't be good enough. The Bible wasn't written so I could be good enough. And I must submit to what God has done for me. That's called imputed righteousness. It's credited to your account. The Pharisees didn't have that because they sought to establish their own. Paul writes it this way in Philippians chapter 3. What's the next passage we have up here? What is more, he's talking about all of his life before he was a Christian and he was a Pharisee and he thought he was a super-duper saint and all that. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss. Compare, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage. I've told you before, that's a, they've cleaned up that word. Some translations say rubbish. They've cleaned up that word. The word is skubalon. It means human excrement. Now, we get a little sophisticated and we want to clean that up. Paul told it the way it was. He says, I consider them rubbish trash garbage that i may gain christ and be found in him there's a little phrase that paul loves in him pharisees couldn't say that they were in themselves in him in christ not having a righteousness of my own that comes from doing good stuff from climbing the ladder from trying to be good enough that comes from the law but that which is through faith in christ the righteousness that comes from god on the basis of faith it's imputed righteousness the Pharisees didn't have that, and we talked through that. But there's another righteousness that the Pharisees didn't have either, that Jesus was talking about and says, it must, this righteousness must exceed that. Not only is it an imputed righteousness, not only is it something from God that's credited to your account, the Bible tells in many places that when, some, when that righteousness has been imputed to you, there is something of God through His Holy Spirit, empowered by His grace that has been imparted to you as well. So I'm not just, well, you know, I trust in Jesus, but I'm just this old sinner. I am a sinner saved by grace, but I'm just not a sinner. I am an empowered, Holy Spirit-filled sinner Christ in me centered, grace in power centered, saved by grace. I'm, I'm just a sinner saved by grace and I can't treat my wife any better because I'm just a sinner saved by grace. After all, Apostle Paul said he's the chief of sinners and I'm the assistant chief. Is that the Christian life the Bible lays out for us? To whom he imputes. He imparts something. I don't understand it. I'll never be able to explain it. I'll retire five or six years from now and still not fully be able to under, understand it. Call it the Holy Spirit that He's given it to you. Call, call it grace that He has, has uh, empowered you with. Call it Jesus living His life through you. Say it, say nothing more than you're a new creation. The old things have passed away and all things have become new. There's a newness So that's why some of you stand up and testify and you say, you know, I hate the things I once loved. And I love the things I once hated. Now, is that because you gritted your teeth and you tried so hard to become a good, good Christian? Or did God give you something? Did God give, I like to call it this way because this goes back to my basketball coaching days. God gave you a want to. If you give me basketball players that had a want to about them, I could do something with them. they got to have a want to. You You can tell when there's a loose ball and two people go on the floor, two people are going for it, who really wants it. God has given us that have truly repented And been saved and leaning hard on the death of Christ and his finished work on the cross. He gives us a want to. Maybe that's just his Holy Spirit. Maybe that's his grace. I don't know. I'm not a theologian enough to explain all that to you. But can I tell you this morning that you're more than just a sinner saved by grace? Are you a perfect person in the fact that you're sinless? Of course you aren't. But you're a Holy Spirit empowered sinner saved by grace you're a sinner that can say christ in me christ in me bringing with him the hope of all the glorious things to come you're a new creation in christ all things have passed away and old things have become new second peter chapter one it's it's a mouthful of a verse now but how can you read this verse without seeing there is some kind of of impartation now listen on this impartation it doesn't mean you're, you're somehow an angel or you're somehow divine I'm not, that, that you're going way off the wrong end on that but there is something that God has given you and if for lack of a better word this morning or lack of a better theological education I'll just call it a want to he's given you a want to where you didn't have that want to before do you know what I mean I hope you do I hope you do Look what 2 Peter says. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now listen to this. His, listen to this. How can there not be some impartation? And I don't really, I don't know really what the impartation means. But how can God not have given you something if Peter writes this? His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. And knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. His divine power has given you everything you need, older translation, for life and godliness. Um, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace, you know. I'm just hanging on by the tip of my fingers, and I'm just going to make it. His divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness. I don't know how to fully explain this impartation of righteousness, but how can you deny that it's not there somewhere? Now, let me really freak you out. Okay? Now, this was old fisherman Peter who wrote this. This was uneducated, crass, probably pretty rough fisherman Peter and he writes this Second Peter chapter 1 verse 4 through this he has given us his very great and precious promises I'm even afraid to read it it's so outlandish this old fisherman says that somehow me and you who are trusting in Jesus we can participate in the divine nature how do you explain that mark i'm not sure go get somebody that's got a phd or, or whatever i don't know but i'm just silly enough to take it him at his word and paul peter says that we can participate equally good translation would be share somehow we can share in the divine nature maybe that's just through the infilling of god's holy spirit Maybe that's through his grace that gets deposited to us. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, Paul says. Or maybe it's just like Colossians chapter 1 27 says Christ in me. Christ in me. I told you last week, I'll tell you again. My seminary president, Dr. Maxie Dunham, said he had a morning liturgy that he did as he shaved. And he stood in front of the mirror and he said, Christ in me, Christ in me, bringing with him the hope of all the glorious things to come. As he went about his duties as seminary president, as he went about his responsibilities as a husband, as he went about his responsibilities as a dad, as a neighbor and all that, Christ in me, Christ in me, bringing with him the hope of all the glorious things to come. I'm trying to tell you here that the Bible says there is an imputed righteousness but to those he imputes he also imparts and his divine power the scripture says has given me and has given you everything we need for life and godliness so I just sin every day in word, thought, and deed I'm I'm not much of a Christian. And I want to ask you, does that match up with what we have in God's Word? Well, how does that impartation, that's where we finished the message last week. And and let me continue on. So how does that impartation, okay, Pharisees, how do you exceed it? It's imputed and imparted. Something inside you. The Pharisees were external. Everything was on the outside. They didn't have what going on on the inside. Imputation, the credit of your account. Impartation, something It's different on the inside. I have no clue why. I just don't think the way I used to. And some of you know what that means. Now, some of you that are just kind of going to church and going through the routine, you don't know what I mean. it first has to be imputed to you when you admit you're not good enough and you never will be. And the only hope you have ever to get in with earshot of heaven is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. But when you lean hard on His atoning work, something happens inside of you. You know, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. It's a pretty tough read, man. Because I don't know about you, but it's a pretty high bar. Pretty high bar. And without some divine grace, without some empowerment from, from, from the triune God, how can I reach that bar? What does that impartation do in my life? Well, This is what Jesus said, because right after he had 520, he has 521. And 520 is that you've got to exceed the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. 21, he says, yeah, you've heard it said that you should not murder. But I say, if you have hatred in your heart, taking the law, you know, 99.9% of the people in the world have never murdered anybody, I guess. I don't have any, I can't footnote that. Atheists don't murder anybody but he takes it away from the external and brings it to your heart. Jesus said, if, if you just have hatred in your heart, if you call somebody a fool, you're guilty of that commandment. So how does that impartation works out? It's an inside job. It's, it's not just worrying about the letter of the law. It's, it's, it's worrying about what causes someone to maybe breach the letter of the law it's about my heart it's about not having a murderous heart that's what the impartation does scripture goes on to say you know you've heard it said you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery but i tell you if you look at a woman with lust as your intent as you, if you even look at a woman, well, I'm not going to do it, but I'm just going to look. I certainly would not ever cross that line. I'm not going to commit adultery, but I'll just fondle that thought a little bit. Jesus says you're guilty. Because it's not about not committing adultery. It's not about not committing murder. It's about what goes on in my heart. It's about a want to. I don't want. God, would you take that thought away from me? That is not of you. That's not who you are. That comes from either me or the evil one. Take that away from me. That's what I mean by a want to. Only people with a want to can say a prayer like that. People that don't have the want to, they'll just they'll fondle that thought. Now, they're going to look good on Sunday morning, but they'll just fondle that thought. Oh, God, would you do something Would you do something so deep in me that you reach down and get to wherever my want to is and would you change it? And Peter says that can be done because his divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness. You believe that this morning? You know, Sermon on the Mount can be kind of discouraging. It can almost be like a sledgehammer because it's just, wow, man, look at that bar right there. C.S. Lewis is quoted one day. Someone criticized C.S. Lewis because he was critical, or at least they thought he was critical, of the Sermon on the Mount. And C.S. Lewis came back with this quote here. Who do we have? As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on the face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of the man who can read that passage. Listen, Lewis was good with tranquil pleasure. I, I, I've had people, and sometimes you know, you're trying to evangelize, you're trying to get to to someone and where they are with the Lord and all that, and you ask them if they're Christian or whatever, you know, and And I've had people tell me, I've had two or three people tell me, well, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. I want to say, what? That person person reads the Sermon on the Mount with tranquil pleasure. I read the Sermon on the Mount and say, God, I need more of you. God, there needs to be a deeper work in my life. That's how the impartation works out. It's an inside job. It's a heart job. Jesus goes on to say, you know, you shouldn't swear by oath. You shouldn't make, take an oath, you know. Don't swear like that. And I, you know, I, I think some people just means that means cussing and you, you shouldn't cuss and all that, but I don't think that's got anything to do with cussing. I, th- I, think, I think swearing by oath means I swear this is true. Whatever kind of oath that is. And don't freak out and when they call you in to testify, don't get all high and mighty and say you shouldn't do that. I mean, That's in a civil arena. But in our own life, when someone asks me the truth, they shouldn't ask me to swear because they know, because of my integrity, my wholeness, my completion in life, my godliness, that my yes means yes and my no means no. So they shouldn't ask, do you swear? How I many of you got your mouth washed out because sometimes you swore to God? I swear to God. And Jesus said, nobody should have to ask you to swear because they know you they know you've got something going on inside of you and your yes is yes and your no is no you don't have to swear by your mother's grave or whatever that's the impartation that Jesus describes after saying your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees and then let me let me, let, let me skip down to the most outlandish verse in all of Scripture. I hope I'm not being irreverent by saying the most, at least on the surface, looking at it in our natural self, the most ridiculous passage of Scripture there is. And Jesus said it. Now, a lot of people will skip this verse, and I'm just stupid enough to do it. Because Jesus said, and five forty-eight of Matthew. Be perfect. I read from. I read from fifty people this week, getting everybody's take on be perfect. And they're probably right, and I'm wrong. I don't know. A lot of people will avoid it. A lot of people go all the way through Matthew and just say just a, couple, just a few lines about be perfect. Because after all, nobody's perfect. And Jesus really didn't mean this. Although it's an imperative. Although you look in the original language, it's an imperative. and He says, be perfect. Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I just kind of want to be honest with Scripture today. And I don't want to skip that just because I don't know how to deal with it. That's, that's, that, that is as much inspired word of God as any other part is. What in the world, what in the world could this mean? Because we all know. And Jesus, I mean, Jesus knows about our imperfections. What in the world could that mean? The word perfect is the word teleos in the original language. It's a good translation here. It's, 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 it, we find this word 19 times in the New Testament. It's not like a, a one little rare usage that never ever pops up again. So maybe Matthew got it wrong. This word shows up 19 times in the New Testament. The equivalent word shows up many times in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament. The word is teleos. It means complete. It means mature. It means whole. It means to accomplish what you were supposed to accomplish. To accomplish the purpose that you were set out for. Now, perfect in our Western Language doesn't mean that. Perfect means perfect, right? Without any fault and blemish. We, we don't have any problem with that, that part of that verse that says, as your heavenly Father is perfect, because he is perfect. That's perfection for us. What we have problem is that we're supposed to be perfect like he is perfect. And that's rightfully so, should we have problem there. But our understanding of perfect is just this flawlessness. Not a spot or a or, or, or wrinkle. This is a dollar bill. You all can't see this, it's wrinkled. This was printed in, what is that over there? 2013, all right, I'm gonna make it more imperfect, at least in our understanding of the word. It's got wrinkles, it's got flaws, I'll even, I'm even going to make it be a, more, a little more flawed. But in the New Testament understanding of this word, this is perfect, this is teleos, if it accomplishes what a dollar bill is supposed to accomplish. And it will. It's 100 cents. And even though it's flawed, it's wrinkled, It's not perfect. It's not a perfect dollar bill because that would be one, in our understanding of the word, right off the press. Right off the press. Look at it. This certainly doesn't look like this. But this can be teleos in a Greek understanding. It can be complete, whole, accomplishing what it's supposed to accomplish. So be perfect. (laughs) Now, if we're going to try to interpret this right, let's stay really, really close to the text. I can't get off and chase any rabbit trails here. I've got to stay really, really close to the text. Let's look at that whole thing in context. 5.43 of Matthew. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They didn't hear it say hate their enemy. There's nowhere in the Old Testament does it say hate your enemy. That was a, that was a, pharisaical, um, that was a pharisaical interpretation of, of the Jews as a chosen people and, and as the Gentiles, as the pagans, you stay away from them. They'll contaminate you, okay? It says, love your neighbor in the Old Testament, especially in Leviticus. You've heard it say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, 45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son, S-U-N, his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, big deal. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And in any time that Jesus wanted to talk about kind of honorary people on that day, he said, tax collectors. And then verse 47, and if you greet only those, only your own people, big deal. What are you doing more than other people don't do? Even the pagans, people who don't know God, people who bow down and worship at idols made of stone or gold or bronze, even they do that. Then comes our verse, therefore, be perfect, therefore, which reverts you back to the context. Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, this perfection has to be a perfection that's in love, because that's all we're talking about in the context. And the scripture has the audacity to say that I can love like God loves. Be perfect as your heavenly Father. is, I hope you're not hearing this as a big sledgehammer beating you over the head, because I I get that, I know that, even though there's some verses that can just wow you, and there's some verses that can even discourage you. This is also an encouraging sermon, because, man, does Jesus really believe that I can live this kind of life? Are you telling me that Mark Atherton, that God believes in me so much that with the empowerment of his Holy Spirit and the, infi- the empowering of grace, that somehow I can be a Sermon on the Mount kind of guy. So yeah, it can be discouraging, but yeah, God believes in me. God believes that I don't have to be a, just an old sinner. Just an old sinner. Every day in word, thought, and deed. I just sin every day, and word, thought, and deed. Grace is bigger than that. We have an optimistic view of humanity. Yes, we're sinners, and yes, we have no righteousness of our own, but man, imparted by the grace and Holy Spirit, the New Testament seems to rise humanity up to a level that we could do something by His grace that we didn't ever believe we could do before. Christ in me, Christ in me, bringing with Him the hope of all the glorious things to come. I don't, I don't, I don't think I can't have that meeting with that person today without getting angry. Christ in me, Christ in me, bringing with Him the hope of all the glorious things to come. Well, you know, I'm just a guy, man. I can't help, help noticing that girl, especially when they got them tight sweaters on, all that guy, Christ in me. Christ in me. His divine power has given me everything I need for life and godliness. So in the context, I just want to whisper, because it's such an outlandish statement, we can love in a perfect way, in the context, 43 through 48, as God loved. Now, let me show you just a few things as I looked over this this week. That love is a love that's not dependent on what others do. It says love your enemies. What's a perfect love? What's loving as a father? Love, it's a love that's not dependent on how other people treat me. It's a love for love's sake, not having to do with the way. It's not tit for tat. That's the way of the world. That's the way of the world. Even the pagans do that way. Even the tax collector, do that do that. It's, it's a love that's not dependent on how you treat me. That's a God love. That's a God love. That's the love that we're called to be perfect in. Verse 43, if I can just remind you of it, you've heard it said, "Love your neighbor and hate your enemy." but I tell you, go ahead, Amy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be called children of your Father in heaven. Who do you have in your life that doesn't deserve for you to love them? That's a perfect love when you love them. Even in spite that they don't deserve it from a worldly perspective this word love is 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 a word that doesn't mean i got all kinds of warm gooshy feelings for them you've heard this word before it's the word agape i'm going to do this i'm going to act in loving ways to you Well, i'm just going to wait to have the feeling you'll be waiting a long time and some of us can testify that if you act before the feelings the feelings somehow come. What's a perfect love? What's loving as God loves that we're called to do? It's, it's a love that's not dependent on how you act. It's a love that's not dependent on how I act. There's another kind of love that it talks about in this passage. It's found in verse 46 and 47. And I just wrote something up there that helps you understand it. It's a love that takes the initiative. It's not a love that's reactionary. It's not a love that just reacts to what other people do, do. It's a love that takes the initiative. Well, I tell you, I've lived here five years, you know, and that guy's never come over and said hi to me. By golly, I'm not going to go say hi to him. As a new neighbor in the neighborhood, yes, he probably should have come over and extended a welcome to me. But God's love, and the love we're called to, is a love that takes the initiative. What is more unchristian than me, I'll just wait and see how long it'll take for him to come over here. And, and that's what Jesus... I mean, I didn't make this up. It's right in the Scripture. This is what Jesus says in verses 46 and 47. What's the next thing we have? If you love those who love you, if you love those who give you love first, if you're just reacting to someone who's nice to you, big deal. Anybody does that. Everybody does that. The tax collectors do that. And then verse 47... And if you say hey to those who say hey to you, what are you doing more than anybody else? The pagans do that. A love that takes the initiative. A love that acts first. Well, I'm just waiting for me to get those Feelings, you're going That's No, not what we're talking about. A love that acts because it's what the Christian is supposed to do. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for me to come to him. He didn't wait for you to come to him. See what his love is? We know of the love of Christ Jesus. That's been the Bible says that's been spread abroad in our hearts. He died for the ungodly. He took the initiative. What's his kind of love? Taking the initiative. What should my kind of love? It's going to be like him, the same thing. It's not going to be a cross, of course. It may be a next door neighbor. It may be something completely different. I got one more thing here. We're going to quit. We're talking about this love in the context. I'm not making anything up. It's right here in the text. So if we're going to interpret this word perfect and we're going to try to interpret it correctly, let's don't stray too far from the context. I don't want to put too much of my own opinion in it. What does the word say? And it says it's a love that surpasses that of the world. It's a love that surpasses that of the world. Even tax collectors do that. Even the pagans are doing that. It's, it's, it's a love that, that, that surpasses that of the world. What's the world? The world is in its natural state. The world is not empowered by God's Holy Spirit. The world is, cannot say, Christ in me, Christ in me. The, the world cannot say, His divine power has given me everything I need. They're in their natural state. And even in their natural state, they can love. But there's some kind of love that is God's love that we're called to live out that's a love that surpasses that of the people that are in a natural state. That are people that are in the world. Even the pagans do that, Mark. Don't pat yourself on the back for that, Mark. Even the tax collectors do that. As as I was reading through this this week and trying to prayerfully come up with something to say and trying to rightfully divide God's Word, trying to somehow preach this in a non-legalistic way, in a grace-empowered way, in a correct way, this thought came to my mind as I was reading. As I wrote this down, a love that surpasses the world. I wrote down, Mark, what is there that's supernatural about your love. Because it's a love that surpasses the world. So if it surpasses the world, it's got to be something from not from this world. What is there supernatural, Mark, about you? Is there any love that you extend towards your wife? Is there any love that you extend towards your kids? Is there any love that you extend toward your neighbor, toward your church, toward wherever, toward the person that flipped you off in the in the in the in the traffic? Is there any any love that you show these people that is supernatural? That's not of yourself? That the only reason that you could extend that love is because of the divine grace of God? I think about that. And I ask you the same question What about the way you love? Is supernatural? Is God empowered? after all his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness Christ in me, Christ in me what about me and the way I conduct myself, conduct my Christian life and especially the way I love is supernatural because maybe if there's something supernatural about it, and I'm not talking about weird and I'm not talking about all freaky, and I'm not talking about being slain in the Spirit and falling down and all that kind of stuff. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about something that's supernatural in my life that I cannot attribute to myself. That someone from the outside has had to move on me. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So, hey, Christian friend. The Bible says, for each one of us that are rejoicing in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, that there is also an imparted righteousness and that imparted righteousness, Jesus says, excuse me, excuse me. Jesus commands that I would live out and love in a perfect way. Just as the Father does. What's your excuse? And what's my excuse? For not being the Christian that you know God has called you to be. You know what that excuse is? Well, it could be a hundred different ones. Let me tell you, one of the excuses is not. There's never an excuse that there's not enough grace. That there's not enough of God's spirit. That there's not enough of his power. What I find in my life is that my will is a problem. My will is a problem. Because sometimes I want my way and not God's. And if I go God's, it just seems like he empires me with everything I need for life and godliness. Don't go out and tell your neighbors that pastor told us to be perfect because they won't get it. They just won't get it. You need it to, maybe you tell them to listen to this message, but if you just throw that out there, you'll think, well, what kind of church are you going to? This has to be taught. And what you heard me say today By an impartation of God's Spirit, by a divine deposit of His grace, by Jesus living His life through you, Jesus says, You can love even as the Heavenly Father loves. Wow. How much He must think of you. How much potential. He must think that we all have. And this impartation can't get cart for the horse. It starts with imputation. It starts with me not being good enough. And there's nothing. I have no righteousness to stand before God on, other than the righteousness that he gives to me through my faith in what his son did for me. That's where it starts. can't start with impartation. It starts when you realize I have to lean 100% on what Jesus has done for me on the cross. And somehow, somehow, leaning and trusting in the precious divine blood of Jesus, there's power there somehow. How do you explain that, Mark? I'm not sure. But there is and that is will take Tim Freeland through surgery this week I'll take Janet Drake through chemo and I'll take you through whatever thing you don't want to deal with this week and you can do it in a way that's pleasing to God our servers are coming to the table father Father, this is a whopper of a message, not because I preached it, but because of the truth that's in it. And it's not easy to comprehend, and especially for those in here, that's maybe the first time they've heard it. I pray, Father, that you would let us all chew on this, think about it, pray over it, but more importantly, apply it to our lives and do as you told us to do when you say to walk in the Spirit. And we will not fulfill the desires of the sinful nature. May we walk in the truth of this message. May I believe that Jesus Christ, through His Spirit, lives in me. And His divine power gives me everything I need for life and godliness. Give me the faith to believe that.